And as we enter into this uh, uh, portion today, we find Yeshua's examination continuing. Remember, he rode into Jerusalem to the shouts of the people. They selected him on the 10th of the Hebrew month of Nisan, just as they were to select their Passover lamb on the 10th of Nisan. And then now they've been examining Yeshua to see if they can find some fault with him, just as they were to examine the lamb, Passover lamb, for four days to ensure there was no blemish. And so Yeshua is fulfilling the requirements to be the lamb of God. And while they're testing him and questioning him, they're trying to trap him. And with each question they bring, they have tried to lay a trap for the master. And in the last two lessons, we saw Yeshua expose their treachery, the treachery of the Pharisees. And now, knowing the Pharisees, knowing that they've been exposed in the last episode, and their hidden agenda has been exposed, that they're trying to trap him, this time they instead send their disciples to question him and we find that in verse 15 it says of chapter 22 then the pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his own words they sent their disciples to him along with the herodians and so now they send their disciples because well simple they've been exposed and so their disciples probably would be more effective in laying a trap for yeshua First, they wouldn't be recognized. And second, the question they're going to ask coming from a Torah novice would seem to be more sincere. But also notice that the disciples go with the Herodians. And just as we said last week in last week's lessons with the Sadducees, the Herodians and the Pharisees don't have a lot in common either. But they have agreed to go together to trap Yeshua. They have this in common. They all want Yeshua gone. And so the Herodians, as their name implies, are those who support Herod, Herod's rule. And because of that, they also support the rule of Rome. Now, when we read the question, it's going to make it clear why they would take the Herodians with them. Because the question is going to be political in nature. And that makes the Herodians perfect witnesses to answer the trap that they're going to witness, the trap that they're going to lay. And so they're laying a political trap for Yeshua, something else we may not see here, that the disciples that they send, they could possibly be Romans as well. And I say that because if we look at Matthew chapter 23, we're going to find that proselytes of the Pharisees were considered disciples as well. It says this in verse 15. It says, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as you are. And so what we see here is it speaks of a discipleship process that the Pharisees used to bring in converts. So it's quite possible that these disciples, either some or all of them, may be Romans who are considering to become proselytes. One thing for sure, Matthew makes it quite clear, they are laying a trap. Verse 16 says, Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. And so by speaking these words of flattery deceitfully, of course, they are in fact 
through their words, though they're filled with treachery and deceit, they're actually speaking the truth. Because Yeshua is a man of integrity. He is a man whose mission was to teach a spirit-led, spirit-filled halakha, or in English, a spirit-filled walk with God, rather than with the, by the way of men. And because of that, he had no regard for the teaching of men, because he taught the words of the Father. And as we've seen, just as the verse said, he's no respecter of persons. It goes on to say in verse 17, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so after the flattery, we get the loaded question. And the question is, is it lawful? Or we could say, does the Torah permit us to pay taxes to Caesar? And it's a loaded question because if he answers yes, then he's acknowledging that Caesar is rightfully the king and the taxes are due him. The people of Israel, of course, don't like the tax, and people like the zealots felt that this was paying homage and legitimizing Caesar's occupation over Israel. And then if he says no, of course he'd be guilty of subversion, and he could be accused before Pilate, and the Herodians being there would make the perfect witnesses for that. But Yeshua sees through this, he sees their deceit, and so he says, but Yeshua, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? You know, like I spoke of last week, trying to argue or trap Yeshua or in a debate is a lesson in futility. Because he can read your mail, just as he did the Samaritan woman in, in John chapter 4. He'd just sit there and read your mail. And also, these men weren't exactly good deceivers. So Yeshua says that, you know, he sees that they haven't come to know what he actually thinks, but the, but the question, or we could say, they're not really there to see what his halakha would be. And he makes no bones about it. He calls them hypocrites. Even though, though, even though he knows that they're hypocrites and they've come to lay a trap for him, Yeshua nonetheless gives them his halakha. The problem for them is he's a few steps ahead of them. Verse 19 says, Show me tribute money used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and so they left and went away. Now, the interesting thing here, for me anyway, is here they are in the temple confines, and neither he nor his disciples have any Roman currency. And the reason and what it tells us about Yeshua is only understood if we know that really the devout in Israel never carried Roman currency. And here we see Yeshua doesn't have any either and we know he hasn't exchanged it because he's within the temple confines and he overturned the tables of the money changers. And so he didn't exchange any currency because he, like the devout of Israel, didn't carry such coins. And why? Well, the reason we spoke of before, they had an image on them. And here's a picture, I put a picture up here of a denarius of the day. On one side, the inscription reads, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And then on the other side, we have a picture of a woman, and it reads, Pontiff Maxim. 
Now, before we get into what it means, here's a picture of Augustus. And you might remember we looked at this when we did the message on head coverings as well. When Shaul tells the Corinthians not to pray with your head covered, this is what he meant. This is the garb of a priest of Rome and Corinth. But that is another message, so we won't go into that today. But I wanted to show you because this is Augustus, and he was called Pontus Maximus, as were the other rulers of Rome. And it literally means something like the great or the greatest bridge builder. And they were considered to be the top priest in Rome. Bridge builder to the Roman gods. Of course, there were other pontiffs, but only one Maximus at any one time. So it's simple to see why a devout Jew would not want to have one of these in his possession. Not only did it bear an image, but an inscription that said that he was the son of the divine Augustus, Pontiff Maximus, meaning he was the greatest arbitrator to the gods of Rome. And so Yeshua asks whose image is on the coin, and they say Caesar's. In other words, he's saying, what identification mark is on the coin? Whose identification mark is on this coin? And Jewish law of the day rules on this. In fact, there's pages of the Mishnah and Talmud devoted to this. And I just pulled down one short passage here uh, that talks about it. I can recognize it by an identifying mark. I shall indicate the identifying mark and shall take it back. So Jewish law dictates if the item has an identifying mark, then it should be returned to its owner. And so Yeshua answers, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And it's simple. In other words, he answers, he avoids their trap. But what, he, and what else he says then is give to God what is God's. Now remember what the coin said. It said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So while Yeshua recognizes the owner of the coin as Caesar, his answer also denies something deeper. He recognizes God as creator of all things, the creator of man. And so just as Caesar is the minter of the coin, God is the minter of man. And so man has the mark of God on him. And so in essence, he says, give to Caesar what is his. He minted the coin, it's his. Give it to him. But give your life, your soul, and all that you are to God because he created you and you bear his workmanship. Even though they're amazed with the answer because the text said they were amazed, if we go to the book of Luke, we find that at his trial, the ones who sent, they sent, lie about him. Listen to what it says in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, whether the disciples lied to the leaders in order to seem that they had succeeded in their mission or whether the leaders are just lying, we do not know. But knowing man, I think it was probably the disciples lied in order to seem like they succeeded. So, but later in the day, the examination of the lamb continues. And this time, it's the priests. The Pharisees... Disciples and the Herodians came to politically trap him 
in a subversive act. And now the very same day, the Sadducees come to question him, to ensnare him. And they, in verse 23 says, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. And so the Sadducees do not believe there's a resurrection. And we can find this in Josephus as well. He corroborates this. They, the Sadducees, also take away the belief of immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. Not only that, but they differ from the Pharisees in another regard, which Josephus tells us. And he says this, what I would now explain is this, the Pharisees have delivered to the people great and many observances by succession from their fathers, which are not written in the law of Moses. And for that reason, it is the Sadducees reject them and say that we are to esteem those observances to be ob obligatory, which are in the written word, but are not to observe what are derived from tradition of our forefathers. And so what I want you to see is the Sadducees take a very literal look at the Torah. They don't accept any traditional teachings of the fathers that the Pharisees are so entrenched in. And that's more than likely why they come to him in somewhat different fashion than the, than the Pharisees. They come to him not quoting tradition, but Torah. Listen to what is said in verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. One was married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second, to the third, right on down to the seventh. Okay, so this is what's called the Leverite marriage, whereby a brother marries, and if he dies suddenly and hasn't had any children to carry on his name, then his brother should take his wife and have a son in his brother's name. So, so as to carry on the first brother's lineage. And we can see this biblically in the story of Tamar, uh, Judah and his sons, and, and Tamar. Now, if you think about this in a logical manner, we would have to assume probably 10 to 15 year difference in the age from the first son to the seventh son. And if we add to that time for them to each to marry, become widowed, and marry, and Mary along seven, we can see that this scenario is really absurd. And if we look at the story of Tamar and Judah, by the time two sons die, Tamar should have been given to the third, but the age difference was so extreme that it didn't happen. Well, the Sadducees have carried it out to seven. And they're being absurd because they want to prove that there is no resurrection. But we can also see the absurdity of seven if we look at a, a, Pharise a Pharisaic tradition. And Samuel Tobias Locks in his rabbinic commentary on the New Testament records this. He says this, it says this, if a woman was married to a first husband who died, to a second who died, and to a third, she should not be wed. Those are the words of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Hanasi. Rabban Simeon ben Gamliel says, to a third she may be married, but to a fourth she should not be married. So if even we look at these, this extreme argument of the Pharisees on the matter, we can see what the Sadducees did was bring Yeshua, what, what the Sadducees brought Yeshua was far outside the realm of possibility, and they're doing it uh, to prove there is no resurrection. 
Now it goes on to say in verse 27, Finally the woman died. Now at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? And so the argument is this. If there's a resurrection, then this is the scenario. The, the Torah of Moses, they're saying if there is a resurrection, then the Torah of Moses is at odds with itself. Because since there's been no bill of divorce issued in any of these, which is required for divorce, then according to the Torah, the woman is still married to all these men. And since polygamy is not acceptable according to Torah, there's a problem at the resurrection. Right? Well, here's how Yeshua replies. You err because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. Now, he says you err, and I want to put the word that's used there for err, the Greek word. And if we read down to 2b, it says, to be led into error, to be led aside from the path of virtue, to go astray, to sever or fall away from the truth. It says to be led away from the truth. And Yeshua says you do not know scripture or the power of God. Let me tell you what Yeshua means. What keeps most people from understanding the word of God is that they read it through a lens of a preconceived theology. I want to tell you something. Scripture is easy to understand if you just read it at face value. There's nothing hard in there. It was written by God for his children. Let me give you an example. Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. I mean, how simple does that get? If you read that at its face value, God tells us, listen, take every seventh day, make it holy, take a day of rest, take a day and focus on me, his, the greatness, uh, his greatness, his kingdom that's coming. I mean, that's really simple, isn't it? Problem enters in when we go to church on the first day of the week. And here the preacher says, the Torah has been invalidated by Yeshua's coming and now the first day is the Sabbath. You see, this teaching entered the church at the time of Constantine. You see, it was the official day of worship in Rome and by edict, he made it the official day of worship of the church. And let me say, he too was a Pontiff Maximus. A builder of bridges to the gods. So since that time, everyone in entering a church has put on Constantine's glasses and read that verse through the lens of Constantine's edict. And so when we read the Sabbath in Scripture, in our minds it becomes the first day of the week and not the seventh. So when we read a passage like this, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants' name from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. We read it and the verse has absolutely no effect on us because the word Sabbath in our minds means the first day of the week now. Even though it's always the seventh day in Scripture. 
Another one is Colossians 2.16. It says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that, to come. The reality, however, is found in Messiah. The reason I didn't read were in there because it isn't in the original text. So here's the deal. Shaul is speaking to Colossians who are Gentiles who are now worshiping God. They've come amongst the Jewish believers. They're moving away from the pagan temples, pagan worship days, and they're coming into the worship of the one God. And now they're coming under pressure from family and former friends to return to their former ways, to their pagan ways. And so Shaul tells them, don't let anyone judge you, or we could say, don't let anyone pressure you from keeping the Sabbath or God's festivals or new moon, for these are shadows of the future, and they teach a Messiah. That's what Paul meant. But instead, we put back on Constantine's glasses, and we read it through the lens of Constantine, and so it becomes... Don't let those Jews judge you for keeping Sunday, Easter, and Christmas. And so we, like the Sadducees, fail to understand Scripture because we read it through the lens of our preconceived theology, and that's just what they're doing. But not just that. He tells them, you don't understand because of the power of God. You don't understand the power of God. You see, if we read Scripture, we would easily understand that the world is not as it should be. If it were as God made it, there would be no divorce, no death, according to the original creation. God, through his power, made the earth a much more perfect place. Divorce, death, and, in, and, and the Leverite tradition that, that they refer to here are a result of the fall. They had no place in God's eternal kingdom. And so Yeshua is saying, if you understood the power of God, you would know that at the renewal of all things, he's able to, able to recreate the perfection with which he made the earth. After all, he was able to create it with nothing the first time. It'll be simple to recreate it in the same perfection at the resurrection. And so you'll be like Adam, the original Adam, not the fallen Adam. The Pharisees believe the same thing. We can find it in Barakot 17b. It says, in the future, there is no eating or drinking, nor propagation, nor business, nor jealousy, nor hatred, nor competition, but the righteous will sit with their crowns on their heads, feasting on the brightness of the divine presence, as it says, and they beheld God and did, did eat and drink. Sounds good to me, right? Now, he takes another shot at the Pharisees when he says they're going to be like angels because Luke tells us that they didn't believe in angels either. In Acts chapter 23, verse 7, he says, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so Luke records for us in Acts that Neither did the Sadducees believe in angels, and so Yeshua is addressing their error in this regard as well. Now, the Sadducees came to this area through a, er, error through a very literal understanding of the Torah. 
and a failure to accept much of what's in the prophetic writings. And so Yeshua, in his rebuke of their error, what does he do? He wisely goes to the very, very Torah that they hold as truth, and he uses a very literal reading to rebuke them. He says this in verse 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And so what does Yeshua do to these people? He goes to the Torah and he quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So, with just a cursory reading of the Torah, I mean, it doesn't take a mental heavyweight to figure out that at this time of the burning bush, Abraham is no longer on the earth. Neither is Isaac. Neither is Jacob. And yet God says, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's the God of the living. Well, I hate to tell you, but that renders another teaching you often hear in the church as null and void. And that's the teaching that you will not wake until the resurrection of the dead, that you just go sleep someplace. Lying in your grave until God resurrects you. Not so, because God is the God of the living. The resurrection has already begun. Yeshua, uh, Matthew makes that clear in, ch in chapter 27. He says, the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised. They came out of the tomb after Yeshua's resurrection and went to the Holy Spirit and he appeared to many. Oh, they resurrected. What do you suppose happened to them after that? They went back to their grave? You see, with Yeshua's death, the ransom we spoke of last week is complete. And the righteous can move on to be with their God. They don't lie there unconscious in the ground. The fact is, Yeshua makes it clear that they never did. And we know that another way. Listen to what a house we know that. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63 records Yeshua saying to the high priest, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Yeshua replied. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of God, right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. What are those clouds of heaven? Well, you just go to the book of Jude and he explains it a slightly different way. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these things. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh, ungodly, harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. See, the resurrection has begun. Yeshua is going to be returning with the righteous and they will be like glorified angels, just like he said. And there is no doubt about it. And the point of all of this and the lesson that we need to learn from all of this is that we have to examine the word of God not through the lens of worn out teachings of the church. Teachings that say the Torah is no more. Teachings that say God has changed the word or changed his mind and changed the law. 
Don't hold water. Listen to the words of the master instead. Instead, he says this in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We need to examine everything that we've ever learned in the church with the word of God and stop reading the word of God through the lens of what we've learned from other men. Throw away the glasses of Constantine and the church fathers and read anew by the light that shines within you, Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen? Amen. Let's go.